on WHMP. And welcome to the show. I am Buzz Eisenberg. And I'm Bill Newman. And thanks for joining us. I am quite excited about this segment. We uh, are going to be speaking with Professor uh, Richard Wolf. He's a professor of economics emeritus from the University of Massachusetts. He's now a visiting professor in the graduate program in international affairs at the New School uh, in New York City. He's the founder of Democracy at Work. He's a host of a nationally syndicated show, Economic Update, and he's an author of many books. We're going to talk about his most recent book, uh, in a little while, uh, which is called The Sickness is the System. But first, we've been talking about the debt ceiling. New York Times had a really nice piece this weekend on the debt ceiling, which, of course, is that restriction on how much the federal government can borrow to pay its bills and allocate funds for future investments. The debt ceiling is currently set at $31.4 trillion. And when Congress directs government money to be spent, it creates a bill that it has to pay. And right now there's a threat from the House, from the Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, that the debt ceiling may not be raised and that we may default on our bills. And so with us to talk about that is somebody I've, I've respected you for so many years, Rick Wolf, and I'm so grateful that you're here with us on our first show, Talk to Talk. Thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you. So... The debt ceiling. Could you share your thinking with us? Sure. Uh, there's two levels to think about uh, when you think about the debt ceiling. One of them we can deal with very quickly, and that is it's a lot of political theater. Uh, we've had this debt ceiling now for many years. We've bumped up against it as a nation many times, and with lots of wringing of hands and shaking of heads and theatrical late-night press conferences, everything that happens happens over and over and over again. Uh, the debt ceiling is enlarged so that the government can borrow more. So the first thing to understand is not to get too wrapped up in the latest rehearsal of this old theater. Even if you've never seen it before, let me assure you, this has been seen as a nation. We've been there. We've done that many times. Now let's get to the substance of it. The only time the government has to borrow is if the amount of money they want to spend on everything from defense, Ukraine and all of that, on over to Social Security and maintaining our highways and supporting our scientists. The only time we have to borrow as a nation, if the amount of spending we do on all those things is greater than the amount of taxes we raise on individuals and businesses. If we as a nation raise the taxes on businesses and individuals enough to pay for the outlay on the services we want, then there is no national debt. In other words, this is not something that is mysterious. This is not something that's hard really to understand. What happens, however, is that we have a very dysfunctional economic and political system in our country. There's no polite or nice way to say this. Here's what goes on. Businesses on the one hand, wealthy people with them on the one hand, and the mass of people on the other would like the government to do all kinds of services for them. No big surprise. And likewise, 
corporations and the rich on the one hand and the rest of us on the other don't want to pay the taxes necessary to provide the services we want. That puts our elected officials in a bind. How are they going to keep their jobs as politicians if they bother us either by not spending on what we want or by taxing us more than we want to pay? The solution the politicians have found, which doesn't show a great deal of courage, does it, has been to solve the problem by borrowing, by giving the mass of people and the corporations most of the services they seem to want, and not taxing them enough to pay for it, and choosing instead the easy way out for the politicians, which is to borrow the difference. And then they get into these games, that's what we're watching, in which the Republicans say, gee, we have a deficit, that's terrible, not accepting, of course, that they have responsibility for it, we should spend less. And the Democrats come back saying, gee, we have a debt, and not admitting their responsibility for it, but proposing uh, that we tax a bit more the corporations and the rich. Both sides go through these rituals, repeat all of this stuff, and nothing changes. It goes right on. They reset the debt ceiling, which they will do in the weeks to come, to another number, maybe a year or two down the road, and then we will go through all of this again. Well, I have a question, Professor. You use the term deficit. You've also used the term national debt and the term debt ceiling. I'd like to know the relationship among those terms. And I'd also like you to get to the point, I think, where you may have been going, which is, well, okay, we're borrowing. What's the problem and how much can we borrow? Good. Uh, first, the deficit is, is an annual number. In other words, the deficit talks about a period of time, usually the current year or last year. And it's a simple measure of how much we spent, say, in the last year over the amount we took in in taxes. So the deficit is simply the difference uh, between this year or any particular year's spending on the one hand and raising taxes on the other. When you have a deficit, the way you cover it, that's the language they use, cover the deficit, is by borrowing. Borrowing allows you to spend what you want to spend, even if the taxes you raise are not enough. You make up the difference, the deficit, by borrowing. And all the national debt is the sum total, adding up every deficit we've had as a nation from our beginning that we haven't paid back. That's the outstanding accumulation of deficits. That's the national uh, debt. A ceiling is simply a decision made by the United States Congress, which means that the Congress could at any time amend it, say by moving it up a little bit, or repeal it, and then there is no ceiling, that the Congress can do because it's a creature of the Congress in the first place. And the ceiling simply says, on such and such a date, or when you reach a certain level 
of total government indebtedness, then you can't go above that ceiling. It's the maximum, and that's what we face now. We have come to the maximum a couple of Thursdays ago, and therefore uh, the government technically cannot continue uh, to spend money because it has run out of the revenue for this uh, period of time uh, that we're in. That's all that that means. And as to the as to the meaning or the cost of it, uh, when the government borrows, there are two things that immediately happen. It has an obligation. It has the obligation to pay back what it borrowed. So whoever lends to the United States government when it runs a deficit that it covers with borrowing, whoever lends money to the government must be paid back dollar for dollar what they lent. And they must be paid back as of a particular date that's established when the borrowing occurs. And in addition to paying it back, the government has to give to the people who own that debt, who made the loan, uh, has to pay them an interest uh, every year between the time the borrowing occurred and the time the money is paid back. Look at it, if I may, from the point of view of a, a big corporation or a wealthy person. Uh, why am I picking them? Because those are the only part of our population that lend to the United States government. You and I have very rarely, I would guess, been visited by an agent of the U.S. government to discuss with us how much we're going to lend to them. They don't come to talk to us because we're too small. We don't have enough money to be in the league that they're in. They talk to the big banks in New York. The government does. They talk to big insurance companies, and they talk to foreign banks and foreign governments because those are mostly who they lend from. And that's why the following is something Americans have to understand. If you don't tax corporations and the rich to raise the money that the government spends, and you run a deficit because you don't tax them, as we as a nation really don't do much of, uh, corporations and the rich over the last 50 years, for example, have been stunningly successful in avoiding and evading taxation and basically pushing the burden of taxation onto the middle income and lower income people. Uh, the beauty for them is not only do they escape paying their taxes, but when the government now has to borrow, it comes back to those people corporations and the rich, because they're the only ones relevant to talk to, and it borrows from them the money it didn't tax from them. So for the corporations and the rich, here's how they look at it. If we stop the government from uh, taxing us, the same government will come a few weeks or months later and borrow from us, which means the money has to come back to us and we get paid interest between the time we lend to the government and it repays us. Every rich corporation, every rich American would laughingly tell you that's an easy choice. Of course they're going to be against taxes. Of course they're going to shed crocodile tears if we run a deficit. But for them, the deficit has got at least as much good news because they're going to be able to lend to the government as it has bad news where they can talk about, gee, it's not good for the government to go into debt. That's why the ceiling 
keeps being put there, keeps being approached, and then keeps being theatrically extended for another two or three or four trillion dollars. It's a piece of theater, but it disguises an arrangement in which corporations and the rich are far and away the best and greatest beneficiaries. It's so sinister. In in the couple of minutes we have before we take a break, speaking to that political theater and and adding to the theater was what uh, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen called the catastrophic economic consequences of failing to right. raise the debt ceiling. Um, I keep hearing about this trillion-dollar coin and these other, which I don't understand. Is there anything Treasury can do? Is there anything we can do uh, if we exceed the debt ceiling without raising it? And what happens then? Well, there's, there's a bunch of questions wrapped up in your question, Buzz. <clears throat> Here's the first one. The Treasury has no problem. It has all the legal, uh, uh, what shall I put it, the legal rights uh, to do the following, to get sit down with the uh, Congress of the United States and, for that matter, with President Biden and make a decision. We're not going to exceed the debt ceiling. We're not going to have a deficit this year. Why? Because we're going to raise taxes on corporations and the rich. And again, let me explain why. For the last 40 years, we have redistributed income in the United States and wealth from the bottom and the middle to the top. Everybody who pays attention knows that. Number one. Number two, we've allowed year after year these deficits to result in borrowing from corporations and the rich in the way I just described. So they've been really having a good time. And it is perfectly reasonable to say, hey, we don't want to do this theater again. We don't want to extend the ceiling. So why don't you guys kick in? You've had a bunch of really good years, which they have had. Profits went up even during the pandemic for most large American corporations uh, pay up. And if you do, then we can do everything the government needs and wants to do, uh, even the, the sudden big expenditures like Ukraine, uh, without, in fact, uh, having to borrow any money, because you will have paid the taxes you should have paid all along. We'll let bygones be bygones. You get to keep all of it. But kick in now, that would be the easiest and quickest and not weird mechanism. But if you want, maybe after the break, we can talk about that coin. I want to talk about that, but I also want to talk about the book, your latest in, in, in your many books, The Sickness is the System When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. We're going to be back with Professor Rick Wolf, Democracy at Work, right after these messages. Stay with us. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Hi, Tom and, and Justin Berg. Eastern time, Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman program. Occupying the media three hours a day, five days a week for We the People. On 101.5, 1400, and 1240. Join me noon to three Eastern Time, Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman Program. WHMP. We live in one of the most beautiful places in the country. The hill towns and valleys that we call home here in western Massachusetts. 
At the Franklin Land Trust, we're working with landowners and community members to protect the landscapes that give us productive farmland, clean water, and healthy woodlands. We don't have to travel too far these days to see places where those sorts of things are just a memory. Our staff and volunteers have helped us to protect more than 32,000 acres so far here in our region, and we hope that you'll consider supporting our efforts to take care of the land that we all love, the farms that give us fresh local food, the riverways that give us clean water, and the forests and wildlife habitats that provide us all with healthy air. For more information on our work of landscape conservation, please visit our website at franklinlandtrust.org. That's franklinlandtrust.org. And thank you for your consideration. Northampton Neighbors is free of charge and open to all with a range of social and volunteer opportunities as well as services and support for members 55 and older in the city of Northampton. Need help? Want to help? Join us as a member, a volunteer, or donor. Northampton Neighbors is about more than aging in place. We're about engaging in place, this place. Find us online at northamptonneighbors.org or call us at 413-341-0160. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. And we are back with Professor Richard Wolf. And uh, just to... Um, finish our to conclude our conversation about the debt ceiling bill during the break you were saying you really wanted to point out that the uh, that the debt is debt that we've already incurred well professor richard wolf let me ask you the debt ceiling has nothing actually to do with expenditures these expenditures have already been appropriated and this is simply allowing this technical thing to happen the raising of the debt ceiling, but the money, this does not involve new expenditures, does it? That's right. It, the expenditures have been decided. Um, the borrowing that, that was implied by those expenditures, given our tax rates, was well known to every Republican and Democratic congressman and woman alike. Uh, the problem is, in order to have that spending, which has now been voted by our Congress in its normal uh, decision-making apparatus, uh, requires borrowing in excess of a limit set earlier by another Congress. And so this one has to decide, either you raise the, li the debt limit so you can do the borrowing to undertake the expenditure that has been voted, or you don't because you observe the ceiling. At that point, the government, strictly speaking, would have to inform the various people awaiting payment from the government that the government doesn't have the money to give them, even though that's been voted by the representatives of the people. And that would then put the, the Secretary of the Treasury, Janet Yellen, in the position very powerful one, I might add, of deciding who among the recipients of government money is going to be stiffed, who is not going to get the money because the ceiling prevents the government from borrowing. And by the way, she's already begun to do that because we hit the ceiling, as I said, a couple of Thursdays ago. And, for example, what she has done since then is not 
put into the retirement funds of three major groups of government employees the amount of money that the government is legally obligated by law to put into those pension funds. And she has assured each of them, don't worry, once we get through this debt ceiling theater, she didn't use that word, but she has promised them in the next year's budget, she will make up the deposits into their fund that she had to hold back because of this debt ceiling. That's the normal way around all of this. She can do this kind of maneuvering, she says, until at least July of this year. In other words, she can not make payments on paper that are actually going to be made, and that way she hopes that there wouldn't be what would otherwise for sure happen, which is, can you imagine, anybody listening, she has the legal right, if you're going to enforce this ceiling, to let everybody who receives Social Security get a letter in the mail saying, sorry, uh, you were supposed to get, you know, $1,200 in your Social Security check this month, but you're only going to get $843 because we have a debt ceiling. Uh, we won't be able to borrow. The Republicans are blocking it in the, in the House of Representatives. Well, the Republican Party would go crazy. Why? Because what you're doing is informing the, the tens of millions of Social Security recipients in this country that this theater is now going to cost them, at the very least, a delay in getting what they're entitled to by law. And let's remember, this is the money that they've contributed to by having money withheld from their checks for their entire lifetimes. You're going to get a very angry population, and both political parties are afraid of that even more than the rest of it, which is why the theater will go through its normal fading away cycle over the next few months. Well, we are talking with Professor Rick Wolf. Before we, uh, we only have a few minutes left. Rick, I really want to hear about your new big picture book, The Sickness is the System When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. Can you talk about your book and what it's all about? Yes, the book, the book is an attempt, and I've been developing this ever since uh, the book came out and ever since I did the research. Uh, the book is an attempt to explain to my fellow American citizens, that we are at a very big change point in American history. Uh, the history of American capitalism was a wonderful story up, you might say, from roughly 1870 after the Civil War to about 1970. It was an extraordinary hundred years. Every decade, the real wages, what people could afford to buy with their wages went up. Profits went up even faster. Businesses were happy with rising profits. Working class people were at least happy that their wages were going up. You developed ideas like the American dream, uh, the notion that America was a kind of a charmed place where people would do better. Immigrants from around the world flocked. Uh, to move to the United States to participate in what was indeed a remarkable century. And where are we now? That's the problem. We peaked around the 1970s and 80s, <laughs> and we would have had to face it then. 
we would have had to have real conversations in our country then, which we didn't have, because we had a drug, a drug that got us through as a nation, not having to face what was going on, having a false sense of well-being that we did not face. And the drug was credit. Starting in the 1970s, Americans became pioneers, but in a different way. Not covered wagons going across the prairie, but borrowing. We borrowed for our homes with mortgages. We borrowed for our automobiles. We borrowed with credit cards, which only became a mass phenomena in the United States in the 1970s. Before that, only traveling business people had a credit card. And then the, the biggest one uh, coming down the pike for the last 20 years has been borrowing to go to college, which we did not do in this way before. We are a country drowning in debt. Debt allowed us over the last 30 years to continue to buy and accumulate uh, stuff, even though the underlying wage, in terms of what it could afford, flattened out, didn't grow anymore, and hasn't for the last 30 years. And it's now pinching. You know, you can't keep borrowing if the real wage on the basis of which you're going to pay all that debt back isn't going up. And Americans have known it. That's why they're anxious about their debts. That's why we had a collapse of our credit system in 2008 and 9, And we're very worried because the signs that we're having another one are coming hard and fast down the pike. And thus we your title, to, the sickness is the system. Is the system. That's right. We have to face big problems that, as always, got worse by not facing them sooner. And the book tries to take us through, not to get folks depressed, but to give people an understanding so we can face these kinds of problems and stop acting as if we could be, you know, spending until t there's no tomorrow, you know, uh, military activities around the world, uh, a kind of notion that everybody can keep doing what they always did. That's what we can't do. And if we keep pretending we can do this, we're going to bump up against our debt ceilings. Let's remember, we used to have a national debt lower than the total output of goods and services in any one year. Now it's no longer the case. Our GDP, that's what the output per year is for the United States this year, will be about $22 trillion. Our national debt is $32 trillion. It's outrun our capacity, and you can't keep doing that uh, until the day of judgment about all of this comes. And the sooner we face it, the sooner we can take the corrective action to deal with it. To and that's, it that's where we're going to have to break right there. It's a great place to leave it. The book is The, Six, the Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. You can get it at, uh, Rick, at Democracy at Work. Yeah, the website is real simple, Democracy at Work, all one word, democracyatwork.info. And, of course, at your local independent bookshop. Bookstore. I can't tell you how much I appreciate your being here with us on our first show, Talk to Talk, uh, Rick Wolf. Um, it's really a pleasure always to talk to you. And let me congratulate you on your new show and wish you every, every success. Thank you, Rick. I hope to talk to you soon. We'll be right back. It is time for Writer's Block with Megan Zinn and a very special guest who's going to be talking about his science fiction work. We'll be right back after these messages. Stay with us.
More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. The name of suspect in a deadly shooting at the Holyoke Mall Saturday night is now being released. 23-year-old Kenneth Santana Rodriguez is now facing multiple charges, including murder. On Saturday night around 7 p.m., the Holyoke Police Department were receiving multiple emergency phone calls about an active shooter event at the mall at the Touch of Beauty Hair and Nail Salon. The Holyoke Police Department, the Mass State Police, and uniformed law enforcement officers entered the salon and encountered the suspect who was in possession of a gun. Rodriguez was taken into custody without incident. After the officers entered the salon, they discovered an injured man who died at the salon as a result of his injuries. The identity of the victim will not be released until proper notification is made. A new documentary is set to premiere Saturday at the Academy of Music, centering on six formerly incarcerated women who have overcome adversity through writing. The film, Finding the Words, the story of voices from inside, is a collaboration between the City and Arts Equity Group of Northampton. The documentary features personal stories of women who have overcome adversity through writing and also examines the root causes of incarceration. At the premiere, Senator Joe Comerford is expected to speak about a bill establishing a five-year moratorium on jail and prison construction in Massachusetts. A question and answer session open to the public will also be held immediately following the premiere. And the Greenfield Local Cultural Council has announced their grant recipients for 2023. They have awarded over $21,000 for a wide variety of programs benefiting the Greenfield community and beyond. Some of this year's recipients include the Stone Soup Cafe, Conway Fine Arts Concert Series, Greenfield Military Band, and Greenfield Winter Carnival Ice Sculptures. For today, partly sunny and mild, chance for an afternoon rain or snow shower, highs 42 to 46. Tonight, cloudy, chance for evening rain and snow showers, lows 24 to 28. And the outlook for Tuesday, partly sunny, breezy and colder, highs in the lower 30s. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Adam Stremko on 101.5 WHMP. This week's Shop Tuesday is Galaxy. This Tuesday at 9 a.m., Galaxy releases certificates for the restaurant in East Hampton. Dumplings, deviled eggs, and an ever-changing menu of creative plates, large and small. A stylish bar and lounge, a dining room with booths of white leatherette. And this Tuesday, you save 30%. Galaxy in East Hampton, available this Shop Tuesday at 9 a.m. on the Shop 30 store at whmp.com. What are the things on the menu at Paul and Elizabeth's restaurant that were on the menu when Paul and Elizabeth's opened in 1978? There's fish and chips, which is tempura-style fish and chips with an ultra-light batter. There's those enormous whole wheat rolls. There's Paul and Elizabeth's fish chowder, so rich and creamy it's kind of hard to believe it's dairy-free. There are new things on the menu all the time at Paul and Elizabeth's, side-by-side side with things that we never seem to tire of, like pot. Every day, financial ads claiming to be different from the competition. Are they? I'm Francis Rayum, the money doctor, and I'm about to make a bold statement. I believe the thing to focus on isn't their uniqueness, it's yours. No one has the same financial situation or needs as you, and no one can help us help you better than you. But the truth is, when it comes to managing money, most of us are not as successful as we'd like to be. No matter how focused we are, it's almost impossible to separate emotion, and being in a relationship can further compound the issue. That's why I developed Hug Your Money. Financial coaching, coupled with online software and tools to empower you to manage money wisely. We guide you every step of the way to resolve immediate issues and plan for your financial future with modeling scenarios. So whether it's debt, budget, retirement planning, or a financial crisis, having a Hug Coach in your corner is like having a new best financial friend. Hug Your Money is as unique as you are. 
In fact, it's patented. Visit HugYourMoney.com. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Billman and Buzz Eisenberg. And thanks for joining us. We're back with our weekly segment, which is called Writer's Block with Megan Zinn. Hello, Megan. Hello. It's exciting to be here in the morning. Oh. So um, who, do we, who do we have? So my guest today is writer James L. Cambius. And uh, Jim is a science fiction writer and game designer and the author of six science fiction and fantasy novels and more than two dozen short stories. And Jim's a native of New Orleans, but he lives in the Pioneer Valley. And um, Jim's new book is The Scarab Mission, which is his sixth published novel and second full-length work, if I'm getting this right, in the Billion Worlds series. Um, the first was The Godel Operation, yeah? Right. Welcome, Jim. Glad to be here. Thanks for being here. Can let's start by um, telling us a little bit, a little elevator description of the new of the new novel, The Scarab Mission. So the Scarab Mission is, I guess you could call it a thriller or almost a haunted mm-hmm. house story. Oh, I like that. About a crew of of far future space salvagers who are exploring a abandoned space station, uh, looking for loot, mm-hmm. and along the way they find another team who are have a more sinister purpose a mysterious stranger who shouldn't be there, and the terrifying secret of what killed everybody on the space station years earlier. Jeez. And the team is uh, con- consists of um, a variety of life forms? Yes. So this <laughs> story takes, right. The Billion Worlds series that I've been working on takes place in the 10th millennium, so the very far future when the entire solar system is populated and there are a billion space habitats and terraformed planets and moons and whatnot circling the sun. So there's also 10,000 years of genetic engineering mm-hmm. been going on. So in addition to my main protagonist, Solana, a woman, uh, there's a, a human woman. There's also Atmin, uh, a uh, intelligent corvid, crow or mm-hmm. raven. Mm-hmm. There's Utsuro, who is a cyborg, although he was originally human. There's Pera, who is a dinosaur, nice. a mercenary soldier. <laughs> And um, Yanai, who is their boss, who is a giant spaceship who moves space colonies. <clears throat> Excellent. So do you have to um, read the first in the series to dive into this book? No. They are, in fact, this one takes place roughly a generation earlier. Ah, okay. All right. The two are not, there's, there's one character in common, but there's no plot connection. Mm-hmm. Uh, my guest is James L. Camby, a science fiction writer. Um, what, is, what was the kernel for this series? Um, what was sort of the initial story or idea that grew, f- that grew from there? Well, we're going to have to get into the weeds of, <laughs> of science nerddom here a moment, because okay. I was thinking back in 2014, what would it be like to live in a, what, what, what people in the SETI business call a Kardashev II civilization? Okay. There was a Soviet astronomer. Uh, uh, radio astronomer who classified possible alien civilizations by how much energy they would be able to give off. And Kardashev 1 would have the energy of a planet. Kardashev 2 would have the energy of an entire solar system Mm -hmm. at their disposal. And this was basically to give radio astronomers a benchmark for how far away would you be able to detect these civilizations. But, you know, the idea of, wow, a civilization that has the resources, the energy, the matter of an entire solar system mm-hmm. at its disposal, they would be they would be godlike to our standards. They would have you know, resources beyond our imagining. 
But then I started thinking, of course, you know, in the real, in the present day, we have resources beyond the mm -hmm. imagining of people living a thousand years ago. Yep. But we also have people who live about the way their ancestors yep. did a thousand years mm -hmm. ago. So in this far future solar system with godlike super intelligences, there's also regular people, you know, scavenging wrecked space stations mm -hmm, for mm -hmm, loot mm -hmm. and things like that. Right. Your imagination is unbelievable. Scarab, I know about the scarab beetle. It's a dung beetle. Is that is that what we're talking about here? The, yes, that's the, the term for them, uh, for this group of, of salvagers. I wanted something... So a, a, a scarab is, uh, you know, it, it makes a dung ball and it rolls it mm -hmm. around. Yeah. So they're, they're exploring. They have to get on board a spinning space station and look for loot. Um, and there's another group who I refer to in the story as the jackals, and they're not the nice guys. Jim, are, are you a science guy who became a writer, or are you a writer who learned a lot about science? <laughs> uh, yes. So I originally went to college to uh, major in astrophysics. But about well, my go. second year of physics, I realized that I did not have the math chops for mm -hmm. this. Um, and so I switched my major to the history of science. This was at the University of Chicago, and they actually have a history of science department. So I got, that's what I got my degree in. Um, and uh, I've always been a, I've been a science fiction fan since I was eight years old, so, you know, I always had ambitions, vague ambitions of, mm -hmm. of writing it, but it wasn't until um, you know the, the late 1990s that I actually started doing it seriously. What was the um, book that, that sparked it when you were eight? Was it a particular book or author? Um, yeah, actually, uh, I remember pilfering my sister's um, Heinlein. Uh, oh. I, we're supposed to say Heinlein Juveniles, but in my case, it was Moon is a Harsh Mistress, oh, yes. which is not a novel mm, no. for kids at all, but I was... Reading it well before I should have. <laughs> <laughs> like a lot of like a lot of um, intense readers were reading a lot before we should have. No, I was stuck on Hardy Boys at that point. <laughs> well, at that age, I was doing both, right? Yeah. You know, I'd read Heinlein and I'd read uh, Victor Appleton the Third, house name for the per whoever was writing the Tom Swift Junior oh, series, oh, okay. which they had at the library. Mm -hmm. That's the great thing about being a kid. All books are equal. In yep. I love Bill's question, but yeah. I wonder, Megan, whether it sounds like you went from history of science to the future of science. Yeah, although I imagine that the future of science is the history of science in some ways. Well, yes, uh, my, my actual studies in the history of science were focusing on the scientific revolution era of the, the 17th century. Um, I, wrote my, I wrote my BA paper about Robert Hooke, who was one of Newton's rivals. Um, and that study actually did sort of eventually manifest itself in my only fantasy novel. The initiate, because um, when you're studying the history of science, particularly at the early modern era, there's an awful lot of magic in it. <laughs> the distinctions yes. were not very clear, and you had people like Isaac Newton who were trying to sort of nail down what the distinction mm -hmm. is. He devoted an awful lot of his life to the study of alchemy. Um, right. Basically, I think he had the idea that, oh, well, I can do for this what I have done for celestial mechanics. Um, so, um, when you, when you start a new book, um, is it usually, what usually is the kernel of it? Is it, uh, you know, did you have an arc of a story in mind? Do you start with a particular event or location or idea or character you want to explore? Usually it's an event mm -hmm. and, uh, a, a place. 
And then I will set out a casting call for characters. <laughs> See what shows up in your head. Yeah. I love that. And do you have a, a plot in mind? Or are your characters sort of invited to the party and you see what happens? Well, yeah, usually the characters and the plot, there's a famous quote from Henry James that what is uh, character but a response to, but the person's response to events and what is plot but the expression of character. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the characters then, yes, drive the plot. Although I usually have an idea of where I want them to go. Mm -hmm. I pick them accordingly. Ah. Could, could you answer this for me? I, I'm just fascinated by this. You're, t you're writing about 10,000 years in the future. It's unimaginable, but you have to imagine it. And are you basing it on science and technology that exists now? Are you taking exponentialist leaps? How do you get there? Well, one of the rules I set for myself is that there is no imaginary science in this setting. Mm -hmm. Everything is true according to contemporary our contemporary understanding of the universe. And that actually uh, is tremendously liberating because it means then I, you know, I can actually do the research and I yeah. can actually do the numbers. Doing the numbers is often surprisingly <laughs> helpful. Um, you know, I, I came up with the title The Billion Worlds after I started thinking, well, okay, this civilization would have access to this much energy and it, this would mean it would have this many people and, the, you know, assuming they're all living in artificial space habitats, how many would you have in each one? And Oh, you get about a billion of them. There's a there's a good title, there you The go. Billion Worlds, mm -hmm. you know. And things like that just sort of pop out often. I just can't imagine what it's like to have an imagination like that. I'm jealous about it. We this is a writer's block with Megan Zinn and her guest, James Cambios. Uh, this is Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg all jumping all over Jim. <laughs> We're gonna take a break, come back. Strowman and the archers split the tree. There was a fanfare blowing to the sun that was floating on the breeze. Look at Mother Nature on the run in the 1970s. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Your phone is a radio. Your computer is a radio. Your smart speaker is a radio. And your radio is still a radio. You can listen to WHMP on all your devices and on 101.5, 1400, and 1240. WHMP. Hello, this is Linda DeGillis, Vice President and Trust Officer at Greenfield Savings Bank Wealth Management and Trust Services. Many of our customers are surviving spouses who have found themselves suddenly in charge of their household's financial savings and investments, which had previously been handled exclusively by their late spouse. A number of our female customers have told us that one of the reasons they moved their accounts to GSB Wealth Management and Trust Services was because they felt patronized or talked down to by their spouse's financial advisor. At GSB Wealth Management and Trust Services, our team of professionals will always treat you with respect and compassion. If you are looking for portfolio management, estate settlement services, or trust services, please call us, Greenfield Savings Bank Wealth Management and Trust Services at 413 775 8335 
That's 413-775-8335. Or stop into any GSB office or contact us online through the Wealth Management section at greenfieldsavings.com. Thank you. When you shop at River Valley Co-op, you get the best local and organic produce, a butcher shop, wine and cheese shop, fresh seafood, and hundreds of bulk herbs, spices, and more. When you shop at River Valley Co-op, you create hundreds of union jobs and generate over $7 million in purchases from local farms and businesses. River Valley Co-op is your food hub, bringing you the best from around the valley and world while supporting your neighbors and local farmers. Shop River Valley Co-op in Northampton and East Hampton today. RiverValley.com. Co-op. It happens all over Massachusetts. In every home and every community. Be careful in your bike. Learning can happen anytime, anywhere. We'll see you at practice this weekend. And no matter how learning takes place in your family's life, Desi is there as your partner. The Massachusetts Department of Elementary and Secondary Education. Never stop learning. Find out more at mass.gov slash back to school. Sponsored by the Massachusetts Department for Elementary and Secondary Education. The Food Bank of Western Massachusetts provides healthy food to families and individuals facing hunger in our region. And right now, with food insecurity the highest it's been in recent years, the Food Bank is distributing more emergency food than ever. Learn more about the Food Bank or get support for yourself and your family. Go to foodbankwma.org or call 413-247-9738. The Food Bank of Western Mass, committed to making sure our neighbors have enough to eat and leading the community to end hunger. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. And you're listening to our weekly segment uh, that I just love. It is the Writer's Block with Megan Zinn. And right now in the studio we have, uh, what do we have? We have 10 billion worlds in the, in the studio. millennium or something. Crazy. They're all fitting in here. Our guest, my guest is James L. Cambia, science fiction writer. And before we um, can dive back in, uh, your new book is The Scarab Mission. Tell us where people can get it. Well, now you can get it at bookstores uh, and online. But um, the book was officially released January 3rd, and I announced it, and then I started getting comments from people saying, I can't find it. Uh-oh. Where is it? I can't see it. It's not in my local bookstore. They, I can't get it from Amazon. And I contacted my publisher saying, what's the deal here? And they said, well, we don't actually know where they <laughs> oh, went. <laughs> they were shipped somewhere, and we're trying to find out where. They're in the ninth millennium. Yes. You're right. There's like that, that risk. They eventually tracked them down, and as I have it on official assurance that they're now getting to where they need to go. But I'm dying to find out the real story. Interesting. So your local bookstores and Amazon, and if your local bookstore doesn't have it, have them order it. Wherever Bain books are sold. Wherever Bain books are sold. So um, you have a history. Before you were writing novels, you were a game designer. And does that play out in your writing? Do you write books like you designed games? Do you, does your brain kind of work in the same way? Is it, is it an um, a, a, a applicable skill? Uh, once again, I'm going to have to give one of those annoying yes and no answers. Oh, good. Because, well, that's good. I mean, we're talking about a novel about a ragtag group of characters exploring a complex full of dangers and monsters looking for treasure. So that kind of gives one a hint that maybe there is a little interest yeah. in gaming yes, yes. fiction. But at the same time, I had to unlearn quite a bit about writing and making the transition from writing for games to writing fiction. Because characters in games get better. They get more capable, mm-hmm. they gain more mm-hmm. abilities, they gain a better understanding of the world. Um, 
in fiction, your characters actually tend to get worse. You know, they lose their advantages, <laughs> they mm -hmm. lose their mm -hmm. assets, they lose their friends. They are eventually reduced to just their their essence. You know, their 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 own resources, personal wits, and courage yep. uh, for the you know so there's a story. moment, yeah. right? And so I had to learn how to do that. <laughs> interesting, interesting. Um, and did your first couple books have end up being more like the games in that way, or did you kind of learn that lesson on the first book? If you look at my first novel, A Darkling Sea, you can sort of see that the characters are accumulating resources in a way that would be familiar <laughs> to a role-playing game character. Um, the only one in which I specifically intentionally had a character who was leveling up mm -hmm. was my fantasy novel, The Initiate, in which the main character is, my elevator pitch is, what if... Harry Potter was John Wick. So he is infiltrating yeah. and murdering his way through a secret cabal of wizards. Who, And <laughs> so he is gaining in magical ability and resources. He's leveling up. But at the same time, his his soul, let's say, is getting more and more corrupted. By, he's becoming more and more like the peop, the villains that he is he is fighting. Um, and so you know, the, he is at the same time losing. Interesting. And, and ultimately is reduced to a moral choice. That is really interesting. Um, so what, um, I assume you've, you know, you're really pretty aware of what's going on in science fiction in the world. What do you find um, exciting or interesting in current science fiction? Besides your own work, of course. Besides my own work. Um, <laughs> the writer that I have been most impressed by recently um, is an Anglo, a, a Polish-English writer, Adrian Tchaikovsky. Right name. No relation. To the, <laughs> yeah, no yeah. relation to the composer. Interesting. Um, and I've been reading some of his stuff and been very impressed by it. Um, <laughs> the the one I'm reading right now, Shards of Earth, is about a ragtag crew of space salvage crew. workers. <laughs> <laughs> that comes up a lot in science fiction. Yes, I think. Uh, but they get dumped into the middle of a vast cosmic war instead. Interesting. Um, I'd be interested to know this, Jim. How long have you been in the Valley? And that's and in that regard, this writer's community, is it part of your community here, or do you write really alone? Um, well, I've been here since um, uh, my wife and I moved here in, in um, 2000. Um, and um, I've been, you know, we, first we were living in, at Mount Holyoke College, and then we bought a house in, in Deerfield. Um, and um, there is definitely a, a a writers a science fiction and fantasy writers community here in the valley. Um, every town has one. Um, <laughs> I, I I think maybe Amherst is allowed to have two, but otherwise, um, do, you, do you have one in Ashfield? Buzz? I, I don't know of one, but probably, I bet probably if I if I said yes, I'd be I'd be science fiction. Yes, but sure. you know, there's there's um, Helen Steele. Mm -hmm. uh, there's there's Holly Black. There's um, um, Kelly Link. There's John Crowley. Mm -hmm. Paul Park, we've got a real powerhouse yeah. lineup of yeah. writers around here. Yeah. And we do sometimes get together. Yeah. Although, you know, we see each other in Boston as much as right, we of see course. each other. Locally. Right, of course, and at conferences and, and other places in the world. Um, so, um, we, you know, we talked a little bit about um, your first, the book that got you into this, the um, Heinlein's, um, um, I've just blanked on, Moon is a Harsh Mistress. I was going to say that, and then I was suddenly worried it was a different writer. What, what, are, your <laughs> other, what are your other literary influences, science fiction or not? Um, oh, oh, gosh. Who did you want to be when you grow up, yes. writer-wise? Well, um, I've always been a uh, great admirer of Rudyard Kipling, mm -hmm. who 
by the way, counts as a science fiction writer. Okay, yep. Um, he had wrote a very influential and rather impressive uh, er, work of early science scientific romance. Which book called is that? With the Night Mail. Uh, okay. Uh, and its follow-up, As Easy as ABC, which mm-hmm. is startlingly prescient in some ways. Okay. <laughs> um, he was writing about the year 2000, mm-hmm. and, you know, he, pre- he, got he some alludes of it right. to the 20th century having... Uh, genocidal mass movements and, uh, you know, uh, the population is starting in, de- is in decline and things like that. Pretty good for a guy writing, a, who thought that it would all be done with airships. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so I've always, uh, one of my novels, um, Arcad's World, is very, very deliberately an homage to, uh, to mm-hmm. Kipling. Mm-hmm. Oh, lovely. Um, but then, uh, gosh, uh, there's so many... <laughs> um, in science fiction, um, I'd like to give a shout out to Paul Anderson as mm-hmm, well because mm-hmm. he, he is definitely an influential writer who has sadly slid in popularity since his death. Yeah. So my guest is uh, James Elcambius, and his latest book is The Scarab Mission, which is the second book in the Billion Worlds series. And I'm going to ask again, where where can people get this, if our um, listeners are wondering? Bookstores of all types, uh, although not used bookstores. My books never make it to used bookstores. Nobody wants to give them up. Um, but uh, bookstores <laughs> of all types, online in the usual places. You know, if you buy books, you know. You know, you, you know where to get these. Yeah. Well, thank you. What a pleasure. It's a pleasure to meet you, Jim. Megan, thank you. Uh, Bill, it is great to be collaborating with you on our new show. And you too, Buzz. And Dan, thank you. Everybody else will be back with you tomorrow. Please do join in on Talk to Talk and have a great evening. On such a timeless flight And I think it's gonna be a long, long time to touch down brings me round again Northampton Neighbors is free of charge and open to all with a range social and volunteer opportunities as well as services and support for members 55 and older in the city of Northampton. Need help? Want to help? Join us as a member, volunteer, or for Northampton and the Valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield. Northampton Radio Group Station.